when I was a boy growing up in the Chicago area, one of my favorite TV shows uh, played on late Sunday afternoons. It was called Family Classics. Some of you can probably remember that show. They played old black and white classic movies. And the movie I loved best, and evidently a lot of people love this movie because they seemed to play it every year, was The Prince and the Pauper. Have you ever seen the black and white of The Prince and the Pauper? Okay, a few of you really old people have. Uh, <clears throat> see, a story, it's based on a novel by Mark Twain. It's a story of two boys growing up in the 1500s in England. One of them is named Tom. He's a pauper. His parents are peasants. And the other boy is Prince Edward. He is the son of the king of England. And, and one day, Tom is out on the streets of London, and the royal entourage goes by, and Prince Edward looks out, and he sees Tom in the crowd and recognizes immediately that this boy looks, looks just like him. Now, now they're not twins, they're not related, but they look an awful lot alike, and so uh, Prince Edward sends a guard to bring Tom back to the castle, and the two boys get to know each other, and they hatch this crazy plot. Prince Edward says, I've always wanted to know what life is like on the streets of London, so I want you to take my royal clothes and pretend to be Prince Edward for a day, just a day. And I'm going to go out and, you know, see what typical, typical England uh, is like. And so that's what they do. Now, it turns into a fiasco. I won't replay all the details of the story for you. But the, the point of the story was this. And Twain, Mark Twain, often wrote novels with a point. The point was that when Edward finally makes it back to the castle and later on in life becomes king of England... Because he's been out on the streets, because he now gets poverty and social injustice and discrimination, he is a kinder, gentler, more compassionate king than he would have otherwise been. End of story. But it sounds a little like another story that we're all familiar with. Sounds just a little bit like the Christmas story. The story of Jesus leaving the glory of heaven where he is God's eternal son coming to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, the son of two peasants, to live as one of us. So, so what's the point of this story? Why, why did Jesus become a human being? Was it just for the purpose of gaining firsthand experience of how we live? Was Jesus doing a Prince Edward sort of thing, walking around in our skin for 33 years so that he could eventually return to heaven and be a kinder, more benevolent, empathetic ruler? What, what, what is the point, to use a theological term, what is the point of the incarnation? What is the point of Jesus becoming one of us? That's what we're going to take a look at today, and it has huge ramifications for every one of our lives. We're in the sixth installment of a seven-part series called Picture Perfect. We have been looking at images of Jesus in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you got your Bible, which you take it now and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Get the outline from your program out, fill it in as we go. Let me just say next weekend, we're going to complete this, this series. Now, next weekend's going to be just after Christmas and just before New Year's, and you're going to be tempted, you know, to stay home. And I would say start the New Year right. Come help us bring in the New Year with the last installment in this series, focusing on Jesus. No Saturday night service, but we'll see you next Sunday. The, the image of Jesus that we're looking at today and which we saved especially for this Christmas weekend is that Jesus is one of us. 
Jesus is one of us. Theologians, as I just mentioned, use the term incarnation to describe this. We're, we're going to begin our study today by answering that question that I've been posing in my introduction. Why would Jesus become one of us? What's the point? So, so here's the first point, the goal of the incarnation. Okay, what is the goal of the incarnation? We're going to read it in the opening verses of today's text. So pick it up at verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through him everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus we're talking about here, God should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, there are two references in verse 11 that I just read to you to the incarnation. Okay, two references to Jesus becoming one of us. So this is why it's helpful to bring your own Bible. You could mark it up. The, the first one you want to underline is that expression of the same family. See that in the middle of verse 11, of the same, Jesus is of the same family that we are. In fact, the, the literal reading of the original Greek text here is, they are all of one. He's one of us. And then the second reference to the incarnation in verse 11 is the very last phrase, Jesus calls his followers brothers and sisters. Okay, he's one of us, he's our sibling, humanly speaking, and if we want to know why, why Jesus became one of us, all we have to do is look at the opening line of the two verses I read to you. Go back to verse 10. begins, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God... Stop there. Jesus became one of us so that God could accomplish the goal of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's the goal of the incarnation. What's God up to? God wants you and me to live with him forever in what the Bible describes elsewhere as a new heaven and new earth. Now, friends, that's tremendous news, but, but there's a, a problem here. That doesn't just happen. I mean, the, the fact of the, of the matter is we are not well suited to spend eternity in glory with God. We are not well suited to spend eternity in glory with God, although we think we are. And several years ago, ABC News did a poll among Americans. First question they asked was, do you believe in heaven? 89% of Americans said they believe in heaven, some sort of heaven. Follow-up question was asked, if you believe in heaven, do you think that you yourself are going there? 85% of the people polled were extremely confident that, yes, they will be in heaven. 85%. Why? Why should any of us assume that we'll end up in heaven? Is that a reasonable assumption? Let me give you several reasons from the verses I just read to you in Hebrews chapter 2 that it might be more reasonable to assume that we won't end up in heaven. Okay, first reason is in the opening phrase of verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. I want to park on the word many for just a moment there. God's plan is to bring many to glory. Not, not all. Many. How many is many? 
Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 10 doesn't say. Uh, the rest of the Bible says it's, it's not going to be the vast majority of people. In fact, Jesus taught that the way that leads to destruction is wide and most people are on that road. He said narrow is the road that leads to life and few people find it. Here's here's a second reason why it might not be a a good idea for most people to assume automatically that they're headed toward heaven. Again, from the first phrase, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So the new heaven and new earth is described here as glory. Now, what is so glorious about heaven? Okay, If you ask the person on the street, they'll tell you, well, it's it's where I get to play round after round after of golf. Or or it's going to be glorious because I'm going to be able to eat everything I want to eat and not put on a pound. You heard people talk like this. Or it's going to be where I'm going to party all day with my friends. Let me tell you, when the Bible refers to the new heaven and new earth as glorious, it's always a reference to the glory of God. Heaven is glorious because God's going to be there. And his glory is going to be incessantly worshipped, celebrated, morning and night. Now, I want that to sink in for a minute because I'm going to make a comment right now that's going to sound ridiculous to some of you. Here's my statement. I don't think most people would like heaven. I don't think most people would like heaven. Okay, if heaven is where the glory of God is celebrated day and night, here's my observation. Here's, here's why I say this. This is not a judgment. It's, it's an observation. Okay, every weekend in our country, a very small percentage of people gather together in places like Christ Community Church because they want to praise the living God. Because they want to sit under the authority of his word and hear, hear what he has to say to them. Because they want to hang out with other people who are really into his glory. But the vast majority of people aren't doing that right now. You know, the vast majority of people, again, not a judgment, an observation. The vast majority of people are sleeping in or uh, getting ready for the Bears game or attending a sporting event of one of their kids or Christmas shopping. Or it seems as if people want to do just about anything else other than celebrate the glory of God. So why would they like heaven? An analogy might be helpful here. I love classical music but I recognize most people don't. So if I run up to you after the service today and I say, I've got great news. Somebody just laid two free tickets on me for the CSO, the Chicago Symphony, this week, and they're playing one of my favorite numbers. They're doing the Beethoven Violin Concerto, and I want you to go with me. Most of you would be looking for an exit door. You'd say, well, yeah, I'd really love to, Jim, but i gotta, um, I got to change the oil in my car that day. You'd find anything else to do to get out of it. Listen, friends, heaven is all about the undiluted glory of God. Now, if you're here and you're beginning to know God and you're you're beginning to celebrate him in your life, you will hardly be able to wait for that day when you'll experience his glory in all its fullness. But, But if getting... To know and worship God is not a big deal to you now. Now, even as you're sitting in a church at Christ's community. Then what makes you think you'd like heaven? 
What makes you think you'd like glory? Here, here, here's a third reason alluded to in Hebrews 2 as, as to why it doesn't make sense to believe that most people automatically go to heaven. Uh, before we look at that third reason in Hebrews 2, let me spell it out for you with absolute clarity from another passage of Scripture, Romans 3, verse 23. In fact, I'll put it on the screen, and how about we all recite it together? So everybody across four campuses, let's read Romans 3, 23. Here we go. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who sinned? All. What's the consequence of our sin? We fall short of what? The glory of God. In other words, we're all disqualified from heaven. We, we have all flunked the entrance exam. In fact, if we could get into heaven, sinners that we are, we would just ruin it. Now, I'm not being facetious here. I imagine all us grubby people with our natural bent for self-centeredness or materialism or bigotry or lust or anger issues. Imagine us all arriving on the shores of the new heaven and new earth. I mean, if, if we think that the U.S. has an immigration problem, if, you, if you're currently worried about unsavory, troublesome characters that might slip into our country, just think of how we'd muck up heaven. And in, in no time at all, it would no longer be glorious. If we were allowed in, it would soon be as bad as our present world. Now, if, if, if anybody is going to get into heaven, they would first need to go through a dramatic personal transformation. Th think Cinderella. Okay, even you guys, you've got to think Cinderella for a moment here. Okay, you, you know the story of Cinderella. She wants to go to the royal ball. But, but she can't go. For one, she's not even been invited. But poof. Her fairy godmother appears and says, sweetie, you're going to the party. And you say, well, you know, I can't go. There's a problem. Look at me. And she's disheveled. She's dirty. Her dress is torn and worn. And the fairy godmother goes, poof, poof, poof. And she cleans her up, restyles her hair, adorns her in a beautiful garment, gives her glass slippers to wear on her feet. And suddenly she is ready to meet the prince. Now listen, friends, ain't none of us getting into God's ball in heaven unless something happens to transform us first, unless something is done about our sin. Now, with that in mind, you go back to Hebrews 2, verse 11. The opening line of the verse describes Jesus as the one who makes people holy. See that? He makes people holy. And the next phrase of the verse describes those of us who are made holy by Jesus. Jesus has to clean us up. That's what it means that he makes us holy in order to get us into heaven. How does Jesus do that? Well, the very first step in the process, according to this verse, later in the verse, is that Jesus became one of us. He, he became, again, look at the end of verse 11. We've looked at it already, part of the same family, the, the human family. We're brothers and sisters, it says. 
you ask, well, how does Jesus becoming one of us, how does that enable him to clean us up and get us into heaven? Well, the rest of the passage is going to explain that. But right now, all I want to do is emphasize the goal of the incarnation. The goal is that God wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory. God wants to populate the new heaven and new earth with people like you and like me. Not all sons and daughters, but many. Who are the many? It's those who really want to go to the ball. You know, the, the, the many are those who long, who desire from their heart the glorious presence of God. It's those who are willing to allow Jesus to clean them up, to transform their lives, who say, I surrender, clean me up. Okay, that is the goal of the incarnation. Number two, let's talk about the reality of the incarnation. You know, the fact of the incarnation. Our overall text for today is Hebrews 2, uh, 10, to verse, uh, 10 through 18. If your Bible's open in, in front of you, I want you to see how many times in this short passage the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus' incarnation. Okay, so we've already looked at verse 11 twice in that verse. The expression of the same family and brothers and sisters all point to Jesus becoming one of us. Go to the next verse. A repeat of that expression, brothers and sisters. But whereas brothers and sisters came from the writer of Hebrews in verse 10, in verse 11, it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. He's calling us brothers, my brothers and sisters. Drop down to verse 14. We have the incarnation again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Couldn't get a clearer declaration of the incarnation than, than that one. Drop down to verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Can't get away from it. This Jesus who's fully God becomes fully one of us. We as a staff at Christ Community Church, our pastoral staff gathers once a month for a, a two-hour lesson in theology. We've got a fairly large pastoral staff, and uh, many of our folks come from a background where, uh, you know, when they went to school, it wasn't to study theology, it wasn't to go to seminary. They've come out of the marketplace, and so we do this gathering. We pick on a topic each month, and we drill down into it and see what Scripture has to say about it. So uh, being that it was December... And Christmas, uh, our, our topic this month was the Incarnation. And uh, Clayton Keenan, uh, one of our teaching pastors, he taught us about the, the Incarnation. And you, you know what a fertile imagination Clayton has, if you've heard him speak. And so uh, Clayton wanted us to understand not only what, what it means for Jesus to be fully human, fully God, he wanted us to understand what it doesn't mean. And so he used superheroes to make his point. Now, now, if you were here this past summer, we did a whole series on Bible heroes and matched them up against superheroes. That's Clayton's imagination at work again. So, so here's what he told us. Jesus is not like Captain America, okay? Because Captain America is just a human being with extraordinary power, but Jesus is a human being who is fully God. Jesus is not, Clayton continued, he's not like the Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk is sometimes a superhero and sometimes a regular guy, but Jesus is simultaneously both God and man. 
Okay, he becomes human at Bethlehem, but when he goes back to heaven, he doesn't leave his humanity behind. It's not like now he's God, now he's man, now he's God again. No, he's simultaneously, ever since Bethlehem, both God and man. Jesus is not like Iron Man. Iron Man is one thing on the outside, another thing on the inside. But Jesus is not man on the outside and God on the inside. He's fully God. He's fully man. Jesus is not like Thor. You know, Thor looks human, really handsome human, but but he's not. Jesus not only looks human, Jesus is human. Jesus is not like Spider-Man. Spider-Man is neither fully super spider nor fully high school student Peter Parker. He is a blend of the two. He's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He's a hybrid. He's a third category. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Is this making sense? Okay, don't you just marvel at Clayton's creativity? Give me a break. It's Christmas week. Come on. Okay, let's quit with the comics. Let's, let's go back to the Bible. I want us to take a look at four stages of Jesus' life that illustrate the reality as well as the importance of Jesus being both fully God and fully human. We'll, we'll start with Jesus' birth. You know, Jesus was born to a human mother, Mary, which makes him human. But Jesus' dad was not human. And you you remember how that wigged out Mary's fiancé, Joseph? I mean, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he was deeply troubled, deeply confused. Why? Because he knew that he, Joseph, was not the dad. Which could only mean one thing. What? Mary had been sleeping with some other guy because Joseph knew it takes two to make a baby. Everybody knows that. Well, it does take two to make a baby. But in this case, the other person was not a man. And it required a visit from an angel to convince Joseph of what had taken place. Matthew 1, verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because, listen, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, from God. Even Mary herself, she needed an angel visitor to explain to her how she was going to become pregnant. Luke 1, verse 35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's Jesus. Fully man, born at Bethlehem, fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. What about Jesus' earthly ministry? Any signs of his dual nature? Well, I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Okay, the first verse we read, verse 10, look at the middle of the verse. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus and he says, God made the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, what does it mean that God made Jesus perfect? We talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the image of Jesus as our high priest. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing there. Jesus was made perfect. Now, now does that mean that there were some things in in Jesus' life that needed correction? 
I mean, did, did Jesus occasionally slip up? Were there, were there some sinful rough edges to his life that needed to be sanded off, that needed to be perfected? No. The writer of Hebrews makes it absolutely clear in other passages that Jesus never sinned. Hebrews 4 verse 15 states it categorically. He did not sin. Period. End of sentence. Hebrews 7 verse 26 says Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. So the expression that Jesus was made perfect, is it's not a reference to some previous sinfulness. In fact, if Jesus had sinned, he wouldn't have been God. If Jesus had sinned, he wouldn't have been fully God. No, no made perfect refers to something else. It, it refers to the fact that Jesus, fully human, had to grow into his role as Savior. See, step by step, by step all through his earthly ministry, every time the heavenly Father gave something to Jesus to do, Jesus did it. He walked in perfect obedience to God. It was similar, you know, if you would, it was similar to his growing up years in the house of Joseph. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. From what Scripture teaches, Jesus was apprenticed to Joseph, his earthly dad, to be a carpenter. And so Joseph taught Jesus over time how to drive a straight nail, how to saw a board in two, how to plane an uneven surface and make it smooth. Humanly speaking, Jesus was perfected as a carpenter. His carpentry skills grew over time. Now, I suppose because he was fully God that whole time, I suppose at age 15, if Joseph had looked at him and said, Jesus, we got to make a dining room table, Jesus could have gone poof. You know, 12 foot long dining room table, poof, 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 matching chairs. But he didn't. He was made perfect as a carpenter over time by doing what Joseph told him to do. In a similar way, Jesus was made perfect as a Savior, step by step by step of obedience to his heavenly Father throughout his earthly ministry. And friends, what an example to us. A good reason to read the Gospels on a regular basis. You know, what would Jesus do is a good question to ask if you know where the power to do what Jesus would do comes from. Third aspect of Jesus' life, his death. I mean, obviously, the very fact that Jesus died proves that he was fully man. Humans die. But friends, if Jesus was only a man, now listen, if he was just one man, his death would have been of limited benefit to other people. Now, why do I say that? Hang in there with me. I want you to imagine this. You, you and I are standing on a street corner. And barreling down the street, coming our way, is a truck, big truck. You don't see the truck, so you step out into the street. And I realize the danger you're in, so I jump out next to you, and I push you out of the way, and I save your life, but the truck runs me over. I die. But my death saved you. My death saved you. However, my death did not save everybody who has ever stepped out in front of a truck be ridiculous to think that. Now, it could be argued 
that the self-sacrificing act of heroism on somebody's part could save multiple people, maybe a hundred people, maybe a thousand people have been saved by someone. But nobody has ever saved everybody everywhere. Nobody has saved everybody everywhere. But go back to Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see something interesting here. Our text for the day begins at verse 10, but I want you to go back to the previous verse, verse 9, which says, We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. He became human. Now crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How could Jesus taste death for everyone? How could Jesus' death be of universal value? Jesus would have to be infinite. He would have to be eternal. He would have to be fully God. You get it? Good. One, One last stage of Jesus' life, we see the interplay between being fully human and and, and fully God. Back to Hebrews 2, I want to read verse 12 to you. I'll tell you, as I studied verse 12, I thought, God, this is going to be a difficult verse to explain, so help me. So God, right now, help me explain verse 12 because it's so cool, I don't want anybody to miss it. Okay, verse 12 is actually a quote of a quote. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Jesus, something Jesus said, but Jesus is actually quoting somebody else. He's quoting King David, who wrote these words a thousand years before Jesus. And in fact, the words are captured in a psalm, Psalm 22. So here here is a verse from the middle of Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting David. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Now, let me tell you something about Jewish people and the Psalms. Okay, this is a New Testament epistle, Hebrews, written to Jewish Christ followers. They knew the Psalms because the Psalms were their hymn book. This is the book they sang out of when they gathered for worship. And so they knew the Psalms inside out. They knew every lyric of every Psalm. You know, it's much like in our culture, if I quote, you know, a line from a familiar song, you know the rest of the song. You know, if I say to you, oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave, you know the rest of the song. You know the start of the song. How does that song begin? Don't disappoint me here. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early. You know the whole song. So here in Hebrews chapter 2, we have a quote from the middle of verse 22. Do you know how Psalm 22 begins? Every reader, original reader of Hebrews would have known. It begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, Jesus quoted those words of David as well. When did Jesus quote those words? Say it. On the cross, when he died. Now, when David wrote those words originally, he must have been in desperate straits, without hope. All is lost. 
But if you read through Psalm 22, he gets to the middle of the psalm, verse 22, that's quoted here in Hebrews 2, and everything changes. Why? Because God intervenes in his hopeless situation. God rescues him. God saves him. And David says, I'm going to praise God for what he's done. This is the verse that Jesus quotes. He quoted the first part of Psalm 22 on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? But something happened. God intervened. God saved him. God rescued him from death. God raised him from the dead. And he says, I'll declare your praise to my brothers and sisters. The resurrection, but here's the really cool part. Friends, when David was saved by God, all Israel knew that David's victory was their victory. When your king wins, everybody wins. When King Jesus was raised from the dead, all who've surrendered to his kingship win with him. How about that? Is that cool stuff or what? So this is Jesus, fully man, fully God, as king over all the earth. Because he's the eternal son of God, all who surrender to his kingship are part of his victory. One last truth about the incarnation. We've looked at the goal of the incarnation We've looked at the reality of the incarnation that Jesus is fully man and, and fully God. And now we're ready to talk about the positive repercussions of Jesus becoming one of us. Point number three, the benefits of the incarnation. And I'm talking about benefits for you and for me. So let's take a look at three of those benefits in the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 2. The first benefit, you could jot this down in your notes. Freedom from Satan's power. Freedom from Satan's power. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. He became one of us. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now, there, there, there's something in this verse that really bugged me the first time I read it. And maybe it just bugged you as well as I read it to you. The writer of Hebrews says that the devil, you know, Satan, holds the power of death. Now, when I first read that, my, my, my immediate reaction was, no way. I mean, no way does Satan hold the power of death. God does, because God is in control of everything. You know, the, the Bible speaks of God, uses that big word. It says he's sovereign which means he is large and in charge. So God holds the power of death. Satan doesn't hold it. Why does the writer of Hebrews say Satan holds the power of death? Here's how one theologian answers that question. Listen. He says, The devil did not possess control over death inherently. In other words, it was not his natural right. But he gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. Let me read that again. The devil did not possess control over death inherently, but he gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. Now, you know the story that's being referred to in that quote. You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God asks them not to eat from a certain tree. He warns them if they disobey, they will what? Die. They will die. Well, Satan tempts them to eat from the forbidden tree. They follow Satan. They, they disobey God and death begins its reign over humanity. 
So, so in a big picture sense, God is in control. Nothing happens that God does not allow. God allows us to choose the path of disobedience, which, friends, it's something we all do. But that path leads to death, eternal death, exactly what Satan wants for us. We all play into Satan's hand. We all give him, we all give him control over our lives and our destinies. That's why Jesus could say in John 12, verse 31, that Satan is the prince of this world. That's why the Apostle Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Satan is the god of this age. That's why Paul in another epistle says that before we surrender our lives to Christ, we're following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. I mean, those are pretty grandiose titles for Satan. Please understand, it's not because Satan is on par with God. No, God is ultimately sovereign. But God, God allows us to give Satan control over our lives, over our destinies. And we all do. And so humanity is under Satan's thumb. You know, we, we need a champion, we, we need a deliverer, we need someone who will come from our ranks, someone who's one of us, because you can't put somebody on the playing field who's not on the team roster. We need someone who will defeat Satan on our behalf, and that's Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, in the second half of verse 14, by his death breaks the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus frees us from Satan's control. Wow, now there's a second benefit of the incarnation, and that's freedom from death's terror. Let me keep reading. He frees us from the power of death, from the devil, verse 15, and he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, people have this natural fear of death. And we, we, we should because it's going to happen to every one of us. You know, I've quoted George Bernard Shaw before on this score. I love his quote. Shaw said, the statistics on death are impressive. One out of every one people die. <laughs> but, but, but now let me ask you, why do we die? You say, well, it's different for everybody. You know, one guy dies be, because of cancer, uh, Somebody else dies because they're in a car accident. Somebody dies because they drown or because they have a heart attack. No, I didn't ask you how people die. I asked, why do people die? It's a different question. And I've already given you the answer in that story of of Adam and Eve. People die because they defy the giver of life. Jesus says, obey me and live. And we choose to disobey him We choose death. Every one of us deserves death. Death is sin's penalty. Every human being must pay up. That's why Jesus became one of us. So that he could pay our debt by dying on the cross. When we surrender our lives to Christ, our debt is canceled. So our eventual physical death no longer becomes a permanent condition. It now becomes a doorway into life eternal. And that realization, friends, should break our slavery to this fear of death. 
I, I was with a dying man just this past week. You know, last Sunday night, I was at his home, at his bedside, holding his hand, praying with him. He passed away on Tuesday. But I'll tell you what I know about this guy. He's a friend. He's a Christ follower from Christ Community Church. I know that while he was sad to be leaving his family, he wanted to stay and protect and care for his family. I know that he had no fear of death. I know that he was absolutely certain that when he passed through the door, he would be in the presence of his Savior, his King. That's, that's what Jesus has done. He's freed us from the fear of death. A third benefit, freedom from sin's control. Drop down to the last verse of the chapter, verse 18. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He became one of us, endured temptation. He gets temptation. Now, there are two aspects of sin that are disastrous to our lives, friends. The first is sin's penalty, and we've just been taking a look at that. The penalty of sin is death, but Jesus paid that penalty on our behalf. He became one of us so that he could die on the cross, the death that our sins deserve. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we, we are immediately freed from sin's penalty, but... There is another aspect of our sin that still remains a problem for us every day, and that is sin's power. So, so we can be freed, let's say, we can be freed from the penalty of our greed. It's been forgiven. We'll never have to pay for it. And yet still give in to the power of greed in our daily lives, right? Right? But we could be freed from the penalty of holding a grudge. It's been forgiven. Jesus has paid the debt. And still give in on a daily basis to the power of resentment, of holding a grudge against somebody else. We, we can be freed from the penalty of drunkenness and still give in to the power of drinking too much, can't we? You see, you see where I'm going? with this. Here's the good news. Jesus can free us on a daily basis from the power of sin just as he has freed us from the penalty of our sin. I love the lyrics of an old hymn that we sing from time to time at Christ Community Church. In fact, as I recite these lyrics to you, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out at our four campuses in just a few moments when we close and collect our gifts and offerings. We're going to sing just a stellar Christmas song about Jesus becoming one of us. But he, here are the lyrics to the old hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Remember those lyrics? Now, you may have sung those lyrics and not realized just how much is packed into that expression. He breaks the power of canceled sin. See, sin has been canceled. If you've surrendered to Jesus, he's canceled your death. Debt, debt, you've been forgiven. But now he wants to break the power of canceled sin in your life. He wants to free you from the sin that dogs you every day. You know, we all got our one or two favorites that we go back to time and again. You know, what is that for you? How would Jesus love to break the control of some sin in your life? What would that sin be? 
As I was meditating on the passage this week, I thought to myself, oh God, I, I don't take this to heart enough. Because if I, if I did, my knee-jerk reaction when facing temptation would be immediately to cry out to you, oh Jesus, you know exactly what I'm going through. You know what it is to be pulled in the direction of this sin. But you said no, 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 no. Now give me the power to say no. That's what he wants us to do. The goal of the incarnation. God wants to bring you to glory. Do you want to go? Do you want to live in the presence of the glorious God? Do you want to spend eternity worshiping him and serving him? Jesus says he's got stuff for us to do. That's going to be cool. The reality of the incarnation, fully human, fully God, and so he could serve as our representative on the cross. And the benefits, he's broken the power of Satan. He's broken the fear of death in our lives. He's broken the control of sin. What a Savior. In just a a moment, we're going to sing a song as we collect our, our gifts across our four campuses that speaks of Jesus stepping down into our darkness, the light of the world. And so our only fitting response is, Lord, here I am to worship. So let's sing from our hearts as we bring our gifts to God. And then our, our campus pastors will close services at each, uh, at each campus.